your Bibles to Romans. Please turn your Bibles to Romans. It has been said the biggest, largest questions we have is where did we come from? Why are we here and where are we going? But I'm going to add a fourth one. Here's the question we're going to consider. What is our greatest problem? What is our greatest problem? Because when you read Genesis 1 and 2, everything's perfect. It's great. It's hunky-dory, however you want to say that. Right? If you didn't have Genesis 3 in your Bible, the world wouldn't make sense. Your life wouldn't make sense. Because this world's a mess. I'm a mess. I have a sin nature. And it's a mess. (laughs) So what is our greatest problem? You think about that. What, what would people say? What would you say to that? There's all kinds of ideas on that. You know, some of you might say global warming is our greatest problem. Well, I don't want to get into that theory, but some people think that. Others might say, "Well, it's 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 poverty. It's it's the economy. This world economy is a mess." Others might say, "Well, terrorism. That's that's got to be our greatest problem." Now, granted, those those are all issues which. I'm certainly not going to talk about today because I don't think God's view on things, God, I don't think God sees that as our greatest problem. So when you read Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you'd say, well, why did God create mankind? Well, he certainly didn't make us because he was lonely. The Trinity's never been lonely. There's perfect harmony and communion and relationship for all eternity within the Godhead. The Bible says that God created mankind to honor, serve, and to fellowship with Him. Now, I've, uh, I've got some pictures up here on the screen from one of my favorite tracks. It might be helpful to you. I hope it serves you. But in Revelation 4.11, there's the throne of God, and you have 24 elders there saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So all things were created for God. And that includes you. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything you and I are supposed to do, our, our, our thoughts, our actions, our words, are all to give the right opinion of God. Well, obviously... If you know your heart, you know what you do and what you say, like, I know myself, I'm the greatest sinner I know, well, that I don't do that very well. I am not reflecting a very, I'm not reflecting God's glory too well. And the world isn't either. There's, there's a lot of problems, isn't there? So what is mankind's problem? Well, in one word, it's sin. Mankind's problem is sin. So, I mean, you start thinking about all the, things you, you might think are problems in a world, like terrorism, for example. There would be no terrorism if there wasn't sin. There, there, there wouldn't be issues in the economy and poverty if, if we had no sin. Right? Think about all the problems you think in the world. You can sum them up in the word sin. So here's the problem. Mankind chose to sin against God. Rather than do what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to be, we're supposed to be serving Him, honoring Him, fellowshipping with God. So here's the problem. Look at Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. No, we don't meet up to God's standard. We, we fall short. We come short. And some may say, well, what does it mean to sin? <laughs> that's, a fun ask, that's a fun question. Just ask your unsaved workmate that at lunch one day. So what do you think is sin? That makes for a very interesting discussion. You'll get all kinds of ideas on that. What is sin? Well, we need to recognize, first of all, God is the one who determines what is sin because the Bible says He is truth. He is truth. So we need to understand, here's a biblical definition. I don't need to define it because God already has, according to 1 John 3, verse 4. God says sin is lawlessness. In other words, it's breaking law. Well, the question is, whose law? Who gets to determine the law? Well, God does, because He's truth. So then we say, well, okay, how do we sin? How do we sin? Well, you can sin in two ways. Don't just think of it as one way. Usually we think of sinning as, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm not doing what the Ten Commandments says. Right? That's what some people might say. Okay, yeah, you can sin by doing what God has commanded us not to do. But there's another way you can sin. You can also sin by not doing what God told you to do. You see how it's both. And the Ten Commandments are very helpful. It's a really short way of, of, of thinking of, of God's law. And, of course, Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments up into two, and he said, love God and love people. So all the Ten Commandments are summarized in those two laws. But an effective uh, way to communicate the gospel as you witness is not original with me, by the way. Jesus is the one who, who came up with using the law to, to show that someone is a sinner, that they're lost. Jesus did that. He used the Ten Commandments. And if you've ever watched Ray Comfort stuff, you know... Ray Comfort just uses Jesus' method, and I, I like this particular method where when you're talking to an unbeliever, someone who's lost, you just use part of the Ten Commandments. Because a lot of people think they're good people. They, they think they're good enough. And so you have to get them to see, no, you're not good enough. Jesus said He's the only one who's good. And that's, that's the struggle, getting people to recognize their loss. They, they have to understand the bad news before they accept the good news. So, use the Ten Commandments as a test to show that they really are lost. So, just walk up to someone, and when you're witnessing to them, you can say, you know, hey, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Get them to talk about their spiritual beliefs. Right? People love talking about themselves, usually. You say, hey, are you a good person? you think you're a good person? People love talking about themselves. And most people are going to think they're, they're good enough. You know, they might say something like, well, you know, I never murdered anybody, or I never robbed a bank, right? they, they got to use extremes <laughs> to justify themselves, right? You know, I'm not Hitler or a Stalin or a, a Mao Zedong or whatever, right? Yeah, I'm not like that. So use the Ten Commandments. So, for example, the, the one I like to start with uh, that Rake starts with, you just walk up to him and say, hey, uh, ever told a lie? Ever told a lie? Right? Usually you can get people to admit they've told a lie. So that's a good starting point. And then you want them to admit, by the way, when, when you're witnessing to somebody, they need to admit they're a sinner. So what do you call it if, when someone tells a lie? 
Well, then you're a liar. And then you can go on to the next one. Well, have you ever stolen something? You know, the value of what you've stolen doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So even if you just stole 10 cents from your parents, right, you still stole it. Yeah, you know, some people are like, well, no, I, I haven't stolen anything. But, but then you can say, well, you just told me you're a liar, so how can I trust you on this one, right? You, you can tease them. People love that sort of thing. So hopefully you get them to admit they have stolen something. So what do we call it when you steal? What are you? Well, then you're a thief. All right? The third one is, well, have you ever dishonored your parents by disobeying them? Everybody should say yes to these. Have you ever hated somebody? Everybody should say yes to that. Uh, have you ever used God's name as a swear word? Just take his name in vain. So, the point is everybody's done these. God knows we're guilty of his law. We've broken his law. And so you, you get people to admit, and then you point this out when you're witnessing to somebody. Say, hey, you, you okay, by your own words, you've admitted you're a, a liar and you're a thief and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a murderer, you're adulterate heart and so forth, right? You're a blasphemer. So, okay, you've admitted all that, so if God judges you by the standard of the Ten Commandments, see, the Bible says you've fallen short of His glory, are you going to be innocent or guilty? Well, we're all guilty, aren't we? The Bible says so. And we know this is, this is God's worldview. He's, he tells us here. And so we're guilty of breaking God's laws. So sin is lawlessness. So we're sinners. So we've broken God's law. By the way... By our actions, we usually think of that, but we also break God's law by our words. Don't like taking God's name in vain. We blaspheme by doing that. But you can also break God's law through your thoughts. See, that's why Jesus in the Beatitudes, he, he talks about our thoughts. You, if you hate somebody, you've committed you know, murder, even in your heart. If you lust, you've committed adultery. So even in your thoughts, you can sin against God. Even in our motives, we can even sin against God. And so we've all sinned against God in, in motives, thoughts, words, and actions. And by the way, God knows nothing is hidden from His sight, the Bible says. Nothing. He is all-knowing. So we've got a very serious problem here, don't we? Well, that's not even the full bad news. Just knowing we have a problem is, is, isn't the full picture because sin we are sinners sin has a penalty the bible says you earn something look at chapter six what do you earn as a result of your sin what do you earn as a result of your sin look at chapter six verse 23 just the first part of it says for the wages of sin is death so you earn death that's what uh, the picture on this slide is going to show you here. Hopefully it's working. So, there's good news there in verse 23, though. It doesn't end there. You notice that? Because you got that awesome word, but. But shows a contrast. So, when man chose to disobey God in Genesis chapter 3, what God had said came true. Now, there's a lot of confusion on this, so... Hopefully, I want. let me be perfectly clear, I hope. So you need to understand something. The basic meaning of death is separation. It's separation. So the Bible teaches there's actually three types of death or separation. 
So a lot of people think, well, God didn't punish Adam and Eve because they didn't die on the spot. Right? Well, you, you don't fully understand the picture because they died spiritually. That's the first way. There's spiritual death where you are separated from the life of God. Like Ephesians 2 mentions, you're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And so that's why Adam and Eve, they, they run and hide. They don't, they don't want anything to do with God anymore because they're, they're spiritually separated from the life of God. But then there's the physical death, the second one. We, that's the one we often think of where your, your soul is separated from your body. The Bible says, like in Hebrews 9, if you die, you're, you're absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. But then there's also an eternal death that Revelation 20 talks about, where, where a person is separated from God forever in the lake of fire. Or, or some people call it hell, but it's not the same thing. Okay, so those are the three kinds of separation or death. All right, and that's what we earn as a result of our sin. Nothing worse than this. Nothing worse. That is our, by far our greatest problem. So let's, let's quickly go over to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to show you here from this text some of the consequences of sin. You need to understand just how bad sin is. And I have a list. I'm going to quickly fly through this. A list of 15 consequences. Just coming from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. So again, we need to understand this chapter because your life and the entire world would not make sense. The Bible would not make sense if Genesis 3 was not in your Bible. Because God made everything good. In fact, Genesis 1.31, he says it was very good. So what happened? Well, they sinned. And we read about that here in Genesis 3. So look, they, they in verse 6, they eat the fruit... Eve gives to her husband Adam, and then the Bible says, look at verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you? You, you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Look at verse 14. Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We'll stop there. So let me just quickly go through these uh, these 15 consequences that are happening here just in this chapter as a result of sin. No, number one, notice there's shame. Nobody experienced shame before Genesis 3, before sin entered the world. Notice it says their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. Previous chapter says they were naked and were not ashamed. So sin was the problem there, the difference. Number two is guilt because they're sewing fig leaves together. They're, they're making a covering for themselves because they're feeling this shame and this guilt. And three, there was now a separation. They're hiding from God. Whereas before they had this beautiful relationship and fellowship with God, they get to walk with God in the garden every day. I have a feeling that was probably one of the worst things that happened to Adam. That's my thoughts. Probably the thing he missed the most, being able to walk with God, perfect communion, fellowship. But now they're hiding. And, and there's also fear, because notice Adam says, I was afraid. Didn't experience fear before. And then, and then there's blame shifting as a result of sin. Ultimately, Adam's blaming God, because he says, you know, God, it's the woman you gave to me. And so there's this self-preservation going on. That's what blame shifting is. Self-preservation at everybody else's expense. You're going to step on people, squash them. Because Adam's saying, hey, it's the woman you gave me. Eve's blame shifting. Then there's isolation. Well, that is for the serpent anyway. Because the serpent is cursed above all the other creatures. Now that one doesn't apply to us. but But we can see isolation even in our own culture, as a result of sin. There's prostration, because the, the serpent had to go on its belly now. Apparently it was upright. There's humiliation, because it's eating now of the dust. Apparently it didn't do that before either. By the way, eating dust is a Hebrew idiom. Just expressing deep humility, deep degradation. In other words, God put him low. Satan had used the serpent. God cursed the serpent. There's conflict in verse 15 because there's this enmity between the offspring of Satan and the woman. Enmity, this conflict going on there which didn't exist before. Verse 16, there's pain. God says, I'm going to multiply your pain. Pain's a horrible thing. That's a result of sin. Frustration in verse 16 because God says now... Uh, Eve, uh, Adam's going to rule over you. So now we got the battle of the sexes. There was no battle of the sexes before this. It was all perfect. 
You wonder why there's so much conflict in our world? This is why, because of sin. Verse 17, God curses the habitats. The grounds curse. So Adam has now forfeited his dominion over the creation. He had perfect dominion over the creation. Now creation fights against him. The the very habitat we live in fights against us. And then in verse 18, there's a cursed occupation. Our very occupations are cursed by sin. Yeah, your, your occupation may not have thorns and thistles growing in your office, but, but those thorns and thistles might take a different form. Okay, so nature's turned against mankind here. And then there's a cursed destination because to dust you shall return, it says in verse 19. There's an immediate physical decay that starts in the human body from the very moment we're conceived and born. And then ultimately, death in verse 21, God's the first one to kill something. There was no death before sin. By the way, that's, that, is a, that is a great argument, by the way, for anybody who believes that, uh, that all things came into being over millions and millions of years. There can't be millions of years because they, the, the people who believe in millions of years believe in death before sin. There can't be death before sin. That is theological heresy. Death comes into the world, God says. That's what you earn as a result of sin. There's no death before sin. So God makes these garments by killing animals, which were probably Adam and Eve's friends. That would have been a horrible sight for them. The death comes as a result of sin. So what hope do we have? That's bad news. But we need to see the bad news because there's no good news without bad news. But remember this, my friends. I love this saying. When you see God's judgment, look for His grace. When you see God's judgment, look for His grace. This is terrible judgment. But even in the midst of this, we see His grace. God shows us a picture of what was to come. Right there in verse 21, God kills animals looking forward to the perfect Lamb of God who would come to take away the sin of the world. And in verse 15, we, we have this, this uh, what do you call it? It's, it's alluding to the Gospel. See, the, the woman's offspring there in verse 15 is Jesus. And so when Jesus died, that was, that was bad. But it was also good because what we have bad is Satan bruising Jesus Christ's heel. But it was not a mortal wound. But what did happen when Christ died and then he rose again, he crushed Satan's head and had a complete victory over Satan. Let me just show you a couple verses that show this. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, Christ partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, my friends, that was created for Satan and the demons, and that's where they're going to end up. So Christ is going to have ultimate victory, and He has victory even now over death. So how can we have this Life. How can we have eternal life? Well, there's all sorts of ways that people try to get to heaven. They 
Some people think they're good enough. They do good works of various kinds. People give money to charity. People help people thinking that's going to do it or whatever it is. Here's some of the some of the main ways people try to earn their way to heaven. So you'll see good works being one of those. Religion, money, morality. All insufficient bridges that, to cross the gulf. So Titus 3.5 says, God saved us not because of works done by us. So good works cannot justify you. Cannot save you. Ephesians 2.8.9 shows us the same thing. It's not by works, but notice it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Why? Why did God say that? Lest you boast. You're proud. That's our natural tendency. We'd be proud. Hey, look what I've done. My, My works get me to heaven. No, they don't. So how can God save a sinner then? Because the Bible says God's holy. God isn't just love. He's also holy and He's just. So we got a problem here. We need this problem solved. How can God save a sinner? Well, the Bible says that God sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus took on human form. Because you can't kill God. There's death as a result of sin. So there needs to be a death. But there also needs to be a perfect life. Guess who does that? Jesus. Jesus lives the perfect life for you, dies the perfect death in your place on the cross, therefore satisfying God's wrath. Jesus, in the process, pays the penalty for our greatest problem, which is sin. He dies on the cross, fulfills God's law, takes our place there on the cross. Look at these verses. Romans 5.8 God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That He might bring us to God. You and I can't get to God on our own. We need someone to take us to God, to reconcile us to God. And that's what Jesus does. So how do we cross the bridge to eternal life? How do we cross this bridge? Notice again, Ephesians 2, 8 says it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So you must receive Christ as Lord and Savior in order to cross that bridge. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. See, it's not just faith. The object of your faith counts for all eternity. So what's the object of your faith? If it's faith in faith, that's insufficient. So, C.S. Lewis says, see, you have to believe something about Jesus. See, either you're going to believe Jesus is a liar, Jesus is a lunatic, or He's Lord, and you're going to bow down and worship. So which is it? Where, where are you? Some people believe Jesus was a liar. Some thought He was deranged. He lost His mind. I mean, He's going around saying He's God? <laughs> no way. He's a lunatic. He said He was Lord. And if He's Lord, then we need to respond appropriately. Well, here's what Jesus said, John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And so in order to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you have to repent of your sins. So sin's your greatest problem. 
you need the problem solved for you. And the only way that's going to happen is for you to put your trust and your belief, your faith in Jesus alone is the only hope of eternal life. The only way it's going to happen. So, see, we, we love our sin before we're saved. And so, so we're, you know, we're kind of walking that road. And so if somebody repents, then they're going to change, God's going to change their mind in regard to their sin. They're going to see things the way God sees them a little bit. And so that's what repentance is, changing that mind. It's a 180-degree turn. And so here's what the Bible says in Acts 3.19. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. There must be repentance. You can't just keep merrily walking down the road. <laughs> you know, if somebody doesn't, if there's no radical transformation, because that's what salvation is, it's a radical transformation. Someone is converted the, from the old creature to the new creature. There is a transformation. And Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But again, believe in what? Notice it's believe in the Lord Jesus. So your faith, the object of your faith is crucial. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So those of us who are believers, we need to understand this so that we communicate the Gospel clearly. See, people have to confess with their mouth an accurate picture of who Jesus is. So can we really know? A lot of people want to know. A lot of people, you ask them, do you know 100% sure you're going to heaven if you were to die today? They, they would say, well, I hope so, or I think so. They don't have that 100% assurance. They don't have that confidence. And the Bible was written, according to John, that you might know that you have eternal life. You can know, according to the Bible, what God says, so it's possible so can we really know? Well, well, yeah, we can know that we're saved. We can know we have eternal life. Let me give you a beautiful promise here. Here's what Jesus said in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Radical transformation there. Radical difference in the future. So... Look at this closely. The verse has one promise, but three parts. Okay, So this is a person who believes, puts their faith, their trust in Christ alone. What, what happens to this person? According to the text. Biblical text says, you have eternal life. So no longer eternal death, no longer eternal separation from God. Now you've got, you, you, you've got this. And by the way, this starts the moment of salvation. And, notice it says, you don't come into judgment. And then the third part of the promise is, you've passed from death to life. Beautiful promise. So, if you're unsaved, if you're a non-Christian, the Bible says, you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And don't wait. Do it now. Today's the day of salvation. And it's really as simple as ABC. I like the ABC. It helps me remember these. So um, if you have a hard time remembering things, this might jog your memory. So, so A is you admit your, your, your sin. You need to admit who you've sinned against. You sinned against God. 
And then he's the one who can then forgive you of your sins. And then you B is believe. So you admit, and then you believe. What, what do you believe? Well, we just read in Romans 10, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, lived the perfect life, died in your place. He, he went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. But he didn't stay there. He rose from the grave, and he is Lord. And then the C is you call upon Jesus Christ. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. So that, that's not a good work, but that's what God wants us to do. And that's something that's personal. It needs to be personal. You, you can't claim the faith of your parents. You can't claim the faith of a church. You can't claim anybody else's faith or anything else. It has to be a personal faith. Like, like for me, I'd heard the gospel all my life. But it wasn't, you know, uh, who knows how many times I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ till I was saved. But God opened my eyes. And said, oh, yeah, I know Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, rose again for my sins, according to the Scriptures. I knew that for many years. Well, several years. But, it, but at the moment of salvation, God opens my spiritual eyes. It's like, oh, 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 Christ did that for me. Oh, I'm a sinner. Well, I knew that. But, oh, okay, so he, took, he bore my sin. He took my place. Well, then I need to personally put my faith in him and in him alone. Well, there's a big question that a lot of people ask as they think about their greatest problem and supposedly what God has done to solve their greatest problem. And here, here it is. Is God just in condemning sinners then? Is God just? Well, God's love, yes, but the Bible also says God is just. So look at Romans chapter 1. We're going to quickly, just wanted to point out a few things here. We don't have time to do the text really justice. But I do want to answer that, that question. Is God just to condemn sinners? Romans 1 answers this. So, there are certain reasons that Roman tells us here for God's condemnation. Why is God a God of wrath against sinners? Why does God not overlook sin? <laughs> well, look at the things he says here. Verse 18. And verse 18 tells us it is because people suppress the truth. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. It's like trying to put push a ball underneath and push a ball to the bottom of the swimming pool and keep it there. You ever tried that? That's pretty hard to do. It's hard to get it to the bottom of the swimming pool, let alone keep it there. It has a tendency to keep popping up, and that's the way it is with truth. God's truth pops up. It, it's in our face. And so God says, well, if you want to try to suppress my truth, you will be condemned for that. Number two. So there is, uh, there is condemnation... From God, God's wrath for ignoring His revelation. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. 
ever since, or perceived, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that were made, so they are without excuse. So why is God's condemnation justly deserved on sinners? Because of God's revelation. People ignore God's revelation. We're, we're, no one was out, is without a witness to the true God. No one on planet Earth. Never. I was going to tell you a story about this, but we'll skip over that. But, but, but look at this. Here's a couple reasons why you should not ignore God's revelation. Verse 19 says it's plain. It's plain. Verse 20 says, don't ignore God's revelation because it's universally seen in creation. You get to see God's, as, as it says in verse 20, what do you see about God? Invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. So you get to see God's goodness and His greatness as you look at His creation. Now, it's not going to save you. You can't get saved by going and hugging a tree or looking at a beautiful mountain. That's not how you get saved. But it is, according to Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above is proclaiming His handiwork. So the point is, it's plain. And so they are without excuse. Let me give you a third reason, according to the text. Verse 21 to 23 shows us that people pervert God's glory. They pervert God's glory. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For what? They exchanged it for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals creeping things. Now, we, we may not make images like that, but we do make mental images, and that's just as bad an idolatry. Wrong mental images of God is also an idolatry. Now, I had some quotes, which I'll just skip over there. But what's the result? All right, again, we don't have time. Go, go back and read all of chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. I'll just quickly tell you the results. And let me point out something. If you look at verse 24, 26, and 28, there's a phrase that shows up. Verse 24, 26, and 28. The point is this, my friends. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. It says that three times, showing that, hey, you abandoned God? Guess what? God abandons you. That's the point. So the results of God's condemnation on a rebellious humanity is, well... Just nothing more than just the natural consequences of suppressing the truth, ignoring God's revelation, and perverting His glory. This is the natural consequences. A lot of horrible things in chapter 1. Read them. I encourage you to do so. So, if you abandon God, you're going to find yourself abandoned by God. That's the point. Now, in, in three particular ways, I'll just kind of summarize these for you. So, if you abandon God, God says... Verses 24 and 25, you get abandoned to fornication. Fornication is just kind of a general word for, for kind of all sexual kinds of corruption, sexual debauchery. I mean, we, we've, today we've got a mess in our, in our culture, don't we? Live-in lovers, wife swapping, group sex parties, 
just to name a few things, that is, that is what happens when you abandon God. Right? The Bible talks about that there in Romans 1. Uh, number two, if you abandon God, you're going to be abandoned as sexual perversion. Uh, the, the, the number one thing that pops out there in verses 26 and 27 is homosexuality. And God says it's not natural because he made, man, he made mankind male and female, it says. So it's not natural. But that's what happens when you abandon God. And number three, again, I don't have time to read all these, but look at all the perversions. There is mental perversion in verses 28 to 32. So you abandon God, you suppress the truth, you ignore His revelation, you pervert His glory. This is what happens. You get mental perversions. All sorts of manner of wickedness is mentioned in verses 28 to 32. So there's uh, things like deceit, malice, gossip, slander, There's haughty people, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Just to name a few things there. So what's the answer, my friends? What's the answer? Why does God give a civilization over to to this kind of thing? It's, It's terrible. Well, He does it because when darkness prevails, often you can see the light. See, these people have suppressed the truth. They've ignored God's revelation. They perverted His glory. How is God supposed to get their attention? Well, dark times, if you're in despair, you're living in violent times, well, men and women are often then the most ready to come to the light. And so God is gracious in this way, and He gives mankind up so that they might give themselves to His grace. My friend, against the growing darkness of our time, we need to make this kind of message clear. We need to make it as clear as possible. How do we do that? You can do it by your own testimony. You can do it by your life. You can do it by living the the fruit of the Spirit out. Joy, love, peace, so forth. Living that out. Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. So if you're a Christian, that's what you are. The question is, are you reflecting the light? Jesus is the light of the world. You're a light reflector. So may God help us to be light reflectors. Let's pray. Thank you for sending the truth in the form of the Bible and in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who is also truth, the Logos, the Word, Thank you for these glorious blessings you've given to us. Thank you for revealing what our greatest problem is. And thank you for giving us a solution in Jesus Christ. May we know Him and love Him and share Him, be an accurate witness of Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.